Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. The announcement that are actually there are two announcements that uh, I need to keep repeating. Uh, one is the um, that we're going to have a family night a week from Saturday on I mean on February the 5th and that begins at I had that up here somewhere I think 4:30 4 o'clock an announcement went out but there it is no that's not it there was a piece of paper around here somewhere with that on it um, that will start and we're going to uh, so there'll be a sign up sheet for the uh, bringing food and everything in the kitchen, and so make plans to be here for that, and we're going to show a film. I think uh, uh, Arlene put a uh, printout in the back about the film we're going to show. It's called How Green Was My Valley, and then, and it's not a, it's not a Greenpeace movie. It's not an environmentalist movie. Just that's a little disclaimer, and then the other announcement is preparation for the Chafer Seminary uh pastors conference that will be on March 7th through 9th and to be prepared uh, for that conference. This is going to be a, I think, really important conference in terms of the topic related to sanctification and the spiritual life. So make your plans for that. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word and then um, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this evening that we can come together to study your word. We're thankful that you have given us your word. The way you have given us your word forces us to constantly dig into it, to study, to uh, excavate the text, to continue to probe its meaning, that we make sure that we properly understand it, and that uh, in the study of your word, uh, God the Holy Spirit uses that to strengthen us, to encourage us, to remind us that you do have a plan and a purpose for our life. And even when we are uh, sometimes uh, enmeshed in the details of life and lose sight of that, that nevertheless you have a, a plan, a purpose, and all things will work together for good. Father, we pray that you would encourage us as we study your word this evening, as we're reminded of your faithfulness and of the way that you have uh, planned things from eternity past, that you have given us prophecy from the Old Testament uh, that provides uh, assurance that that which we believe is true and that as we study your word, we, we're constantly reminded of how you guide and direct us through your word and through God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, on Sunday, I said that I would tell you a little bit about the trip tonight. And I'm going to do that. I have not pulled together all of the pictures yet, so I don't have uh, pictures uh, or a slideshow to show everybody. I hopefully will have that for you on Thursday night. But one of the interesting things that occurred uh, before I went to Kiev this time is that I'd had a meeting with uh, a couple of leaders in the Jewish community here uh, about a week or two before I went to Kiev, and one of the men that I had lunch with that day is the president of the Jewish Federation here in Houston, which is one of numerous different organizations uh, within the Jewish community for, uh, and with the Jewish Federation, one of their missions is as they uh, collect an enormous amount of uh, finances from the Jewish community, they then distribute about 50% of that uh, goes overseas, some goes to Israel, and much of it goes to other uh, Jewish organizations, especially in countries like Ukraine, that then use that money to um, take care of many of the impoverished uh, Jewish people within Ukraine. They are also, uh, and that organization is usually referred to as the Joint Distribution Committee or whenever you're just within, you know, talking among Jews, it's usually just referred to as the Joint. And so... Uh, uh, they set up a meeting uh, for uh, Jim Myers and myself, uh, went and we met with the um, man who is the director of the joint in, in Kiev, 
And uh, that was just an incredibly impressive operation. They have over 250 what they call chesed houses. Now, chesed should be a word that is familiar to all of you. It's the word in the Old Testament referring to God's faithful, loyal love. And this is where they demonstrate their love for uh, Jewish people, for uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, and their combination there are ministries that distribute food and medicine and many other uh, items to those uh, in the Jewish community that are in need, and they probably uh, minister to about 90 to 100,000 in in Ukraine, estimating that there's somewhere between four and 600,000 uh, Jews in Ukraine. Now, there's only about 30 or 40,000 in Kiev, but there are some other areas like Zhitomyr, where Eager um, and, and uh, Julia live, with, who we support as as missionaries, and as well as a large city about 150, 200 miles south of of Kiev called Nipopetrovsk. Say that three or four times, and it has an extremely large uh, Jewish community there. But they, uh, we met with the leader of the, the uh, head of the joint there. He had just been in Kiev a couple of years, and before that he had been down in Nipopetrovsk for about five years. Prior to that, he had been in the IDF for uh, about eight years and was uh, grew up on a, on a kibbutz just south of the Lebanese uh, border uh, in uh, northern Israel. So it was really interesting talking to him, young man in his uh, probably third, early 30s, and uh, just to find out the incredible amount that they do in distributing uh, necessary items to not only uh, Jewish families in need, but also the 25,000 uh, Holocaust survivors that are still alive in Ukraine. Now, to qualify as a Holocaust survivor, you have to have been born prior to, I think it's, I may be wrong here, but I think it's January the 1st of 1946 which means that you would have been conceived during the time of the Holocaust. And so anybody uh, who meets that criteria is still considered to be a Holocaust survivor. And there were some reparation uh, decisions made with Germany back in the mid-'90s, and so Germany continues to pay a certain amount of, of an indemnity to uh, uh, Israel and to Holocaust survivors uh, after World War II, so they take care of that. And then they took us to one of the large Hesed houses in um, in Kiev there and gave us a, a tour of all the different things that they did there, fed us lunch, and that was very, um, very interesting, and also to see how how deeply organized they are. And then to go back and realize that the Joint Distribution Committee was very active during the uh, period during the Second World War and before that trying to get Jews out of Europe and trying to get them out of Eastern Europe and all of the different things that were involved in there. So it's a very interesting organization. Then on uh, another day, I had a meeting also set up with uh, a man by the name of Idan Pesohovich. Uh, it takes me a while to get that name out. And, and I was, had a really nice meeting with him. He is the uh, what is called the shaliach, which is an interesting Hebrew word. It means an, uh, uh, like an emissary, but shaliach is the closest word that we have from the Old Testament or Hebrew to refer to someone who is sent on a mission to represent somebody, although it is never translated in the Old, Test Old Testament with the Hebrew verb uh, apostello or apostolos. A shaliach is the closest that there was from a from a Old Testament perspective to an apostle that is someone sent on a specific mission um, in in the New Testament, and we'll be studying a lot about the whole thing about apostles as we go further in our study in Acts one. And so, his this individual's responsibility is to uh, help Jews get out of Ukraine if they want to and make Aliyah to, which means immigration, to Israel. And that's a real problem because unlike in the U.S., if you live in many of these former Soviet countries or many countries in the world, you have you can't travel anywhere without papers, and your papers are stamped with your ethnicity and with your religion. 
And yet during the Soviet period, it was the desire of many Jews to not be identified as Jews because of persecution. And it was also the desire of the Soviet government from the very beginning to just eradicate all ethnic uh, differences. That was the idealism of the, of the, uh, of the Soviets was to, uh, we're all one, we're all comrades, we're all equal and to do away with these kind of distinctions. So they burned any records. That's why, uh, I have a, a couple of friends whose families came, come from, uh, Jewish families go back through Ukraine, but you can't trace any kind of uh, genealogy because records were either destroyed by the Soviets or later by the Germans. And so that makes it very difficult for a lot of Jewish people to be legally identified, to qualify, to make Aliyah to, to, uh, uh, to Israel because they can't prove they're Jews because they don't have the right papers. Also, there's a large number of Jewish families that under the Soviets just didn't want to be identified as Jews, and so they didn't even tell their children that they were Jews. I met one young man who invited me to go to synagogue with him for Shabbat uh, when I was there and then to his home for uh, Shabbos dinner, and he was about, I'd say he's probably 28 or 29, 30, somewhere right in there. And he was 18 or 19 before his parents told him he was Jewish. And then he started going to the uh, 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 Jaffe, that's the Jew- Jewish uh, Agency for Israel, otherwise known as the uh, uh, Saknut, uh, which means agency in Hebrew. And he started going to the Saknut to take some of their culture orientation classes to find out what it meant to be a Jew. And he went through a metamorphosis until now he is a, a Kavadnik, Kavadnik, which is uh, one branch of the Hasidic. You normally think of the Hasidic as those with the uh, uh, payas, the curls, but not all Hasidim have curls. That's something I learned there. But both of the synagogues in, in Kiev are run by uh, Kabad, so they're uh, hyper-Orthodox. So that was very interesting to spend time with him, and they told me stories about many times they have people who come in, get involved with different things at a Jewish community center, and they'll ask them, well, are you Jewish? And they'll say no. Uh, and then as they get more and more involved, they'll say, well, how come you're so interested in Jewish things? Is your mother Jewish? Yeah, my mother's Jewish. Is your father Jewish? Yeah, my father's Jewish. Well, you're Jewish. No, no, I'm not Jewish because they haven't been brought up with the Jewish culture or anything Jewish whatsoever, so they don't self-identify as Jews, and it's not on any papers or anything. So it's just a really interesting thing that they have to work through in trying to help so many of the Jews get, get, get to Israel. So that was, uh, that was something that was very different in terms of this trip. And then uh, Idan and his wife uh, were very gracious to me, invited me to their home one night for dinner, and we had a... Uh, good time to uh, visit together, and uh, it, it was good because I was able to include Jim Myers with me, and the Jew- these Jewish organizations really have such great logistical abilities, and they have a lot of, uh, of organization, and there are various things that, uh, that they can cooperate on and things that uh, can help uh, Jim and some of the things that he's got going on there, uh, so... Those were some very good connections. The uh, classes I taught for the Word of God Bible College there went very well. There were about uh, 11 students, although there were uh, most of the time I only had about nine because there were a couple of them that were sick with the flu that were out for the first week. So it was a little bit of a smaller group, uh, but they were very motivated. They were really good students. They asked a lot of very good questions, good probing questions. Uh, it's always interesting to go and to speak to a group like that, uh, to those students, because they have a number of other doctrinal church pastors come over there, men like t- uh, Todd Kennedy and uh, several others that will go over there every year. And they ask each of us the same questions to see if they'll get the same answers. And uh, Margaret, who's a translator, uh, has said to me several times, she says, it's amazing, you all all come over here and you all give the same answers. She's, and she's translated for a lo- in the past for a lot of different, uh, a lot of different pastors and a lot, a lot of different groups, and she says, that's not true with most pastors. They have all kinds of different ideas, but all the men who come over and teach 
uh, with Jim all give the same answers. They all agree with each other. So that, that really impresses them and impresses the students. And uh, one of the things that I was a lot better at this year than I've been in times past, the, the Russian language is a very aggressive-sounding language, and I noticed the, after the first couple of years that I did this that when students would ask me questions, I, I felt very defensive because they act like they sound like they're attacking you. Like they don't believe a word you're saying. Why in the world are you saying that? Just a real rough-sounding language. And so I would feel and sense that I was immediately set on edge just when they started to ask a question just because of the way it sounded. And over the last two or three years, I have, uh, you know, talked to myself at the beginning. Now, they're not attacking you. It's not a, they're not arguing with you. They're just asking a question in their, you know, Irritated sounding language. So, but they, uh, but the students did, uh, uh, did real well. And I just got word today that they all passed their final that I gave them last Friday while I was flying home. They were taking their final. Jim has not been doing well because he's been ill. He had to go to Poland. Uh, they had to leave the country for, I think, two or three weeks in, uh, late November for visa purposes. They had to leave the country and then, then come back. And he caught a bad cold, and you know how sometimes you get a bad winter cold and it cycles two or three or four times and leaves you feeling pretty pretty tired and wasted, and so he's gone through that. So I really didn't get to spend much time with him when I was there uh, this time because I didn't want anything that he had that lasted that long, and so I preferred for him to stay as far away from me as possible. And he was so still trying to recover from it that he uh, he didn't come to... A church uh, the last week uh, that I was there at all, so I really didn't get to spend that much time with him. But they'll be back here on February the 9th for a couple of days, and then he leaves to go down to Brazil for two weeks, and then they'll be back here in uh, preparation for the uh, pastor's conference, and they'll be here for the pastor's conference. So you'll see him a little bit, and he'll be able to give a good update on the work that is, uh, that's going on there. Their church is meeting in a new location. It's meeting in a hotel and a conference room in a hotel there that's fixed up pretty nice. I think it's a, it's a good move. And I was also encouraged to see that their congregation had a lot of young people. I would say a lot of 30-somethings, some 20-somethings and a lot of 30-somethings in the congregation, uh, which is uh, good to see, good healthy spread. All right, let's uh, open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1 as we go into the next section in this first chapter. Now, as we look at the organization of the first part of Acts, what we see in verses 1 through 3 is a prologue, basically a summary of what Luke has already said in the Gospel of Luke. He reminds them that he had, uh, as he writes to Theophilus, that he had already uh, written to him about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day was taken up, uh, that is, the ascension, after he had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Very important phrase, that he is the one who chose the apostles. And then verse 3, summarizing the teaching period over the, um, over the period of the 40 days between Passover and the ascension, that he presented himself alive after suffering by many impalpable proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And we spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God, which is fundamental to understanding especially the first seven churches. We have to remember that in Acts, especially the first seven chapters, we're in a transition period from one dispensation to another dispensation. We're moving from the dispensation of Israel a subcategory of the age of Israel, a subcategory of which was the uh, dispensation related to the Messiah. Uh, I refer to it as a dispensation of the Messiah because that's exactly what Jesus was doing, was presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, offering them the kingdom. That is the essence of his ministry up until the last uh, probably six to eight months of the uh, time uh, that he was on the earth. And so it's a much more accurate and descriptive title because it relates to his primary mission and purpose in relationship to Israel 
and it's still under the age of Israel, and they're still under the Mosaic law until uh, the cross, which is the end of the law. So we have to understand that period of, of uh, history in relationship to the offer of the kingdom, the rejection of the kingdom, and the postponement of the kingdom. And then in verses 4 through 11, we get Jesus' uh, final parting uh, directives to the disciples where he tells them to stay in Jerusalem to wait the promise of the Father, which is the baptism or the coming of the Holy Spirit, identified in verse 5 as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which is what uh, John the Baptist had taught. And then verse 6, the disciples understood that the coming, uh, they they understood that an outpouring, I'm not going to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they understood that an outpouring of the Holy Spirit marked the coming of the new covenant and the beginning of the kingdom. So when Jesus says, talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're trying to connect the two, which is why they ask the question, is it, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus doesn't correct them and say, you've got a wrong view of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. I'm going to rule the kingdom from the right hand of the Father. He doesn't come up with any of that. He just corrects their timing that it's not for them to know the times and the seasons, and then reminds them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And then the key directive, you shall be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That is their mission. Now, they understand that because he has already on more than one occasion told them that their new mission is related to taking the gospel to the world. We looked at that in terms of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what's commonly called the Great Commission, that uh, uh, <clears throat> where he says, when you're going, uh, make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey all, of, all the things that I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, he breathed on them and gave them a temporary endowment of the Holy Spirit that is still present, as far as I can tell. I can't see that that was uh, taken away, so that they still have this temporary uh, endowment of the Holy Spirit in relationship to this new mission. So they understand that there is a new mission, or they should, that is worldwide. And so that has already been uh, clearly stated. And then in verses 9 through 11, we have the ascension of Jesus to heaven. So we have... Uh, a summary in verses 1 through 3, we have uh, Jesus reminding them of the coming of the Holy Spirit in verses 4 through 8, and then the ascension is described in verses 9 through 11. Now, the next section is all covers one basic event having to do with the disciples in um, going to the upper room and organizing themselves. And there is a prelude to that in verses 12 through 14, where we are told that they went to the upper room, which is where they had celebrated the what is called the Last Supper or the Passover meal the night before Jesus went to the cross when the Lord's table was established. And that, um, and then we're reminded of who the uh, 11 are now that Judas has been removed. We're reminded of who the 11 disciples slash apostles are that are left. And then Luke tells us that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That prayer and supplication is related to the, uh, what God, what, what Jesus just told them that they are to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon them. So it's not just the, uh, 11 that are meeting together for prayer, but also uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So James and Judas and the uh, Jude rather, and the other his other brothers who were not believers until after the resurrection are now believers and are meeting with the apostles. They're not all staying there the whole time. In um, and Jewish custom at the time, it was very rare 
for, for you wouldn't have women and men staying in the same location. They would have been separated. They would have been separated during synagogue, women on one side, men on the other side. Uh, anyway, so it, it's uh, absurd to think that the, uh, the, all of these people stayed for all of this time. That's what some people think when they see the meeting in the next section um, that they met for. Uh, when the 120 came together, that they stayed there all that time. They didn't have, the room wasn't that big, And number one. And number two, they didn't all have a four or five or six or seven or however long it was day slumber party waiting for uh, the Holy Spirit to come. And then we have these these verses from 15 through 26, uh, which is, uh, 12 or 13 verses, if you just look at that section directly or if you add the prelude to it, uh, we have 15 verses from 12 through, uh, 12 through 26 that are focused on this one event. Now, the reason I point that out is because there's a certain amount of discussion over whether or not this selection of Matthias to replace Judas was a legitimate decision on the part of Peter. Before we can even address that question, we really have to understand all that's going on in the passage, which is what we'll focus on this evening, and then get back to some of the other questions uh, related to its legitimacy next week. But first we have to understand the dynamics of what's going on with, within the passage. Um, but it's a question that you always have to ask. Whenever you're reading Scripture, whenever you're studying any portion of of Scripture, we always have to ask the question, why did the Holy Spirit tell us about this? Because when you look at the Old Testament, for example, and you look at all the different events that are are described for us in the Old Testament over a period of 4,000 years, we're told about very few things that happened during those 4,000 years. It is a, the Holy Spirit under, uh, inspiration is very economic in his use of words and in his selection of episodes to tell us about. It's a highly selective divine viewpoint editorial of history to make God's point. He doesn't tell us everything about what Abraham did. He starts off with Abraham when he was probably about 75 years of age, and then up to the time of the death of Sarah, when he was about 120 or so, we're not told about but about 10 or 12 different episodes during that 45, 50-year period. And then when we take it all the way out to the end of Abraham's life, uh, we're not told about too much that happens after the time that he took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. We're told that he remarried uh, and that he had some more children, but that's it. There's a lot that's left out. When you look at the life of Moses, there are uh, huge periods of time that are left out. We're told just enough information so that the story makes sense and the application or implications that God wants us to understand are are made clear. So whenever God, the Holy Spirit, does pick an episode anywhere in history and spends 15 verses describing it, it, there's a reason for it. And we have to be able to address that reason within the flow of the argument of the book. That is where a lot of biblical exposition breaks down because a lot of people just do what I call either Rorschach exegesis, you all know what a Rorschach test is, that's an inkblot test. And that's where you, know, you go into the psychiatrist and he shows you ink blots and says, well, what do you think that is? And you use your subjective imagination and whatever that blot looks like, whether it's a butterfly or whether it's somebody, uh, a, a medieval knight charging on his steed with a lance at a, Uh, at an enemy, or whatever it is you think you see there, you just automatically say, well, that's what this is. And a lot of people, that's what they do. They study the Bible. They read a verse two or three times. They say, well, that reminds me of this. And so you hear all about some other topic, but they never really go through the passage itself to understand it within its immediate context, within the context of the chapter or the subdivision of the book, 
or within the message, the argument, the structure of the book. And the basic message that we see in the book of Acts has to do with the the origin of the church under the apostles, and it spread throughout the Roman Empire. That is why the only two apostles that are of the original 12 that are emphasized in uh, the book of Acts are John and Peter. James is mentioned one time, and starting with chapter 9, you start to get a transition from Peter to the newly saved Paul, and you'll have a chapter on Paul, and then a chapter back on Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, and then it's all Paul from that point on out. So there's that transition. You don't hear about any of the other uh, disciples, what they did, where they went, what their ministries were, because it doesn't fit the message, the theme of what God the Holy Spirit wanted Luke to communicate. And so you can't You have to go in and look at something like this and say, number one, if God the Holy Spirit spent 15 verses describing the apostles going back into Jerusalem and staying in the upper room and gathering everybody together and making a decision about Judas and replacing Judas, you have to say, well, why why does he tell us this? Is he telling us this to point out that Peter is basically flawed and doesn't know how to make a good decision? Well, how does that fit within the flow of what is being said in Acts? Well, it's hard to justify that. Is he saying, pointing this out to show that uh, Peter's making a good decision? Well, it's also a little bit difficult to identify that. But that is, when all is said and done, if you can't answer the question, why did God the Holy Spirit tell us this, then you haven't studied the passage and you haven't figured it out. And you can't make application from anything if you don't know why it's there. Uh, Of course, a lot of people do that all the time, but uh, I try not to do that. So we have to figure out how this fits within the within the argument, and I use that in a technical sense, within the thought flow of what the author is trying to communicate. So we have to understand that. The other thing that we have to understand is how Peter goes about making this decision which is very interesting and is consistent with how uh, the uh, apostles in Acts 4 and Acts 5 go about decision-making. It's fascinating to do this, and it's important because in the course of our lives, we have to make decisions on a lot of different things, and we have to do something very similar to what Peter is doing here and what Peter and John do in Acts 4 and in other places. We have to be able to go to the Scripture and study the Scripture and derive from the Scripture the patterns and the principles and the promises that we take and apply to our life so that we can make wise decisions. And so that is also a very important, which forces us to come to a, a study of how these Old Testament passages are used in the New Testament. Now, that seems to be a rather abstract idea for a lot of people, um, and and you, you probably are lot, much like I was at one point in my study of the Scripture, uh, even through uh, the course of time that I was in seminary, there was a lot of discussion about the use of Old Testament and the New Testament, and a lot of it just kind of went past, just went right past me, And I was like, why is this really important? And it is over the course of probably the last 15 years or so, maybe a little longer, that I come to, I've come to understand that this is a crucially important topic. And there's a lot of error that's made because people don't understand how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. And the way this is handled, and a lot, by a lot of our contemporary theologians and pastors, has led to a lot of. Well, we've lost some signal. Wait a minute. I can probably fix this with a little battery plug-in. We'll bring that back to life in a minute. And as I pointed out in, this will resurrect in a minute, 
Uh, as I've pointed out a number of times in recent months, as we've talked about some of the new trends that are going on in Paul's studies and, and uh, some of the problems with uh, uh, these new ideas that have come along about the Apostle Paul really wasn't talking about the imputation of righteousness and um, uh, some of the other things that are coming up, it always goes back to, it seems like, impreterism, problems in eschatology, things of this nature. It always seems to come back to a um, always seems to come, I've just got to get this going again or we'll all be confused tonight. Um, it always seems to come back to this problem of how do you understand the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So let's just start, this will power up in just a minute. Uh, let's just, um, we'll turn everything off for a minute and I'll let it recover. Um, let's just start by going to the opening uh, introduction in verse 12. It's important to also pay attention to the pronouns that we have uh, throughout this section. Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. The they refers to the 11 uh, disciples slash apostles who are meeting, who have been meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are uh, consistently referred to uh, in this section by this second-person plural pronoun. That's important because when you get down to chapter 2, verse 1, which says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, the they that are all in one accord in one place are the ones who are going to speak in uh, unlearned languages And if the they refers to the 120, then you have 120 people speaking in tongues or unlearned languages. And if you have, um, if you have, um, if the they only refers to the 11 or the 12, then you have a different group. You only have the apostles speaking in tongues or in unlearned languages on the day of Pentecost. And that is very important to understand when you get into some of the issues that have been raised by the uh, modern charismatic movement and some of their positions. So what we see here is these, this refers to only the 11 are tw- that return to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. Now, the Mount of Olives is very close to Jerusalem. It's just across from the old city, across the Kidron River Valley, and it doesn't take very long uh, to go. It's only a couple of miles at most, which is a Sabbath, Sabbath day's journey as identified by the by the Mishnah. A Sabbath day journey was only... Uh, two miles, it was as far as you could walk, and you couldn't go any further than that. Incidentally, that is why most Orthodox and hyper-Orthodox Jews live within two miles of their Orthodox synagogue is because on Shabbat they have to walk to and from synagogue. So there's a Orthodox community over off of Fondren Southwest and another uh, kind of in the area of Bel Air that's w- so that they can walk uh, inside of two miles from their um, uh, from their synagogue. So we read, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. So this was where they had been, uh, all, all of the 11 were staying there uh, since the time of the resurrection. And then we have our listing of the apostles, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, uh, Simon the Zealot, and Judas uh, the son of James. Then Luke tells us, these all continued with one accord, so there's a unity of mind, with one accord in prayer. Now, there's a textual variant there, and the New King James says in supplication, but I, I believe that is probably not in the original. They all continued with 
uh, one accord in prayer uh, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This would have included Mary Magdalene and probably uh, Salome, who's the mother of James and John, and a couple of others, and with his brothers. So that gives us the introduction to this section, the cast of characters, and focuses us on uh, the location of the decision-making process. Verse 15, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And so we're told at this point that they had uh, a number of different um, uh, disciples, followers of Jesus, met together in the upper room, and there they uh, would meet for prayer and to uh, encourage one another and to wait for the coming, uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's see if I can get to the right passage here. So Peter stands up in the midst of the, of the disciples, and he says, addressing them, men and brethren. Notice he's addressing the men because within a Jewish culture and within a biblical culture, the leadership is focused upon the men, not upon the women. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then he, and this is an allusion to Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, he is applying that passage to the current circumstances and to the betrayal of of Jesus by Judas. Then, in verses 18 and 19, Peter says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Now this is a application or direct reference to a prophecy in Zechariah eleven, twelve and thirteen. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for, for my wages thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, the 30 pieces of silver, this prophecy was fulfilled in Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and then when he was overcome with guilt, he tried to return it, and the uh, uh, Sanhedrin would not accept it, and so he threw it into the temple, and then it was used to buy uh, uh, the potter's field to buy a place for his grave. That's how it's, he doesn't, doesn't directly buy it, which is how Peter puts it in uh, verse 18. A man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. It is indirectly purchased. He throws the money into the temple, and then it's used to buy the potter's field. We'll get into that as we go through the passage. In Acts 1.20, Peter then said, quoting Scripture again, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let this... Uh, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And then he quotes from another psalm and says, let another take his office. Now, what we have to realize here is Peter is building a biblical rationale for choosing a replacement for Judas. He starts off, first of all, by talking about the fact that Judas' betrayal is based on biblical prophecy. Then he goes to other biblical prophecy to talk about uh, Judas and the need to replace him, quoting from Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And on the basis of the last line in Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office, he is arguing that it is important to replace, um, to replace Judas with another disciple. Part of the reason for this is that 12 was a very important number in Israel. To have only 11 meant that you, you had an incomplete group or incomplete number. You had 12 tribes, 
And so the group, even when uh, there's at least only one reference, when Judas wasn't part of them, that they were still called the Twelve. It was important in, within their culture to have a have a dozen, to have twelve. And so there, there's that need, uh, that rationale as well, that recognition that they needed to replace him. And then, um, when we look at this, we see that there are a number of these passages that have been, that he goes to in order to justify and establish the need to uh, do to make the choice that they are going to make. So if we're going to evaluate his decision-making, we need to at least understand his decision-making. And before we jump to any conclusions as to whether it is right or whether it is wrong. Now, another reason that I'm taking some time on this is because in the past I have always taught the position that um, that Peter was not right in making this decision. And it, over the course of time, in talking to and listening to other uh, pastors, I've heard at least two different men make an allusion to this at, during pastors' conferences where they believe that uh, Peter was absolutely right in making this decision. So uh, putting myself in the position of somebody sitting out in the church, I hear somebody say it's right, somebody say it's not right, we have to take some time to evaluate uh, the the data and to look at the passage and to do, make a uh, more informed decision as to whether or not Peter was making a wise decision or whether Peter was doing what Peter often did, and that is running off a little impatiently rather than uh, waiting on the Lord's direction. And so this is uh, this is important to do this for a number of different reasons, and frankly because as I've gone back and looked at the usual argument that is presented for this, that it isn't stated very well, and so that has to be corrected. So there's, and, and most of you have heard that argument, and that needs to be uh, re- reevaluated. So uh, unfortunately, when something is taught a certain way and it needs to be corrected, it, sometimes it takes five times longer to go through the correction and analysis to explain why you're saying what you're saying than it does to just state it to begin with. Because if I just stated what I'm going to conclude, I would have to answer the questions for the next six weeks. Because some of you ask really good questions. So as background, not only for understanding this, because I was going to cover this material when we get into the beginning of Chapter 2, we're just taking it a couple of weeks earlier than I uh, otherwise would have, Uh, it's important to ask this question, uh, related to the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how do these writers, how do the apostles use and quote the Old Testament? Because many times you go back and you look at the original quote in the Old Testament and you say, well, that's not what that writer was talking about. How did Peter get this out of, uh, for example, Psalm uh, 41? when he says that uh, the scripture had to be fulfilled, uh, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Well, if you look at Psalm 41.9, David isn't talking about, it's not a prophecy. David isn't talking about Judas at all. David is talking about his friend Ahithophel who has betrayed him. That's what the original context indicates. So how can Peter say that, that he, that, um, David is talking about Judas by the mouth of David. So we have to uh, answer these questions. Now, some of you who were here for the pastor's conference uh, several years ago, uh, when uh, Robert Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas from uh, Master's Seminary came and taught on hermeneutics, will remember that he talked about the fact that the apostles in the New Testament often quote from the Old Testament in ways that go beyond the literal understanding, the literal meaning of the Old Testament passage in its context. And in his language, he calls that an inspired, um, inspired plenary uh, usage of the passage, that the writers of the New Testament can do this because they're uh, writing or speaking under inspiration of Scripture. 
We can't do that. We can't go back and, and add to or reapply or add new information to an Old Testament passage because we're not doing it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But the New Testament writers, the apostles, uh, could do that. Now, that is, I, I think that uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum and uh, some others have done a uh, better job of breaking down the usage of the Old Testament. It's, he had two categories. One of his categories is subdivided into three categories by those who have uh, studied this in the context of how Jewish rabbis at the time were quoting the Old Testament. And so I'm going, I've done this before. We've gone through this before. We'll do it again uh, tonight to see how the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. The first usage is where the Old Testament passage is a literal prophecy that is fulfilled in a literal manner in the New Testament. All four examples that I'm going to use come out of Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 5 and 6, the context is that uh, the Magi have come to Herod, and they said, we've seen the star of the uh, king of the Jews in the east, and we have followed his star. Where is he? And so Herod calls in the, uh, Sadduc- the, the Pharisees and Sadducees or religious leaders and says, okay, where's the, this Messiah supposed to be born? Uh, of course, he doesn't tell them of his uh, hidden agenda to destroy the Messiah, but that he's trying to find out that information. And so they tell him in Matthew 2, 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, the original is in Micah 5.2, which reads, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that is, Ephrathah was one of the um, uh, ancients in the tribe of Judah who had first settled Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5.2 is a literal prophecy. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.5 and 6 says this is literally fulfilled. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. It's a literal prophecy with literal fulfillment. Now, when most of us read a passage in the in the uh, scripture, like Acts one sixteen, this scripture had to be fulfilled. We think this is the kind of fulfillment it's talking about. But what I'm pointing out to you is that fulfillment language is used four different ways in the scripture, and this was typical uh, of rabbinical usage at the time. When we get into Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter is going to stand up after witness, after all of the things have occurred on the day of Pentecost. Peter is going to stand up and say, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And a lot of people want to take that as a literal fulfillment, this kind of fulfillment. Now, if you do that, then we're living when? We're living in the millennial kingdom. We're living under the new covenant. Because if what Joel said was the literal fulfillment then either we're in the millennium or you have to have some kind of a partial fulfillment on what they call already not yet, that it started then and it's going to finish when Jesus comes back. And so we're in this kind of already not yet kingdom, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. So you have to understand how in the time in which the Bible was written, how they use this fulfillment terminology. Now, the next passage points this out a little more. In Matthew 2.15, we have another statement about fulfillment. Matthew 2.15 talks about the time, uh, talks about when after um, uh, Joseph and Mary had been warned by an angel in a dream that Herod wanted to take the life of the child, they left to go to Egypt. Then when they came back from Egypt and went to Nazareth, uh, Matthew says and that he was there, that is, in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. See, there's that fulfillment terminology again, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Now, that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, is in, found in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it is not a prophecy. Micah 5.2 was a prophecy, but Hosea 11.1 is not a prophecy. Hosea 11.1 is is reviewing the history of the nation Israel, and Israel was called the firstborn son of God, and Hosea 11.1 is talking about literal Israel when God rescued them from uh, slavery in Egypt, and uh, God is saying, when Israel was a child, that is in 1446 B.C., I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's not a prophecy. It's not a messianic passage. Uh, it is a historical passage, but it has a t- typological fulfillment. Now, the word type means a shadow or a pattern. And so there's a shadow or pattern of Israel coming up out of Egypt to the land that foreshadowed what would happen with the Messiah, that he would also go to Egypt and follow that same pattern and come back uh, from Egypt. So this is called a literal plus typical fulfillment. The rabbis called it a remez passage, which means it has a hint or a clue of what we would call a suggestion or foreshadowing uh, a pattern of a future uh, future event. There are a number of other different uh, types of, uh, uh, that's a bad, bad use of the word in this context. There's a number of other different passages that fit this same t- uh, category. Uh, for example, Isaiah 29 verse 13 as quoted in Matthew 15, 7 to 9 is a similar type of uh, use of a, of a literal event that occurred that is applied typologically uh, to the Messiah. Also, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, the rejected stone is quoted in uh, Matthew 21, 42, as a type of the rejection of the Messiah, the foundation stone that would become a stone of stumbling. So that is one approach a second approach way in which fulfillment terminology was used. A third is seen in Matthew two seventeen and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. A, quote, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is also referring to a literal event. It is a literal event that is described in Jeremiah 31, 15. It's describing uh, the wailing of the mothers as their sons were being taken off in deportation by the Babylonians back to Babylon. They would never see their children again. And so uh, there is this weeping. Now, Ramah is north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Matthew is applying this to the weeping of the mothers in Bethlehem after their two-year-old sons or less were murdered by the soldiers of Herod. Uh, Ramah is north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Um, Rachel weeping for her children. Her children are being killed. They're being deported to Babylon. But in the Matthew passage, the children that she's weeping, that Rachel is weeping for, Rachel standing as a wife of of Jacob is standing for in for the mothers of Israel. Uh, She's weeping for her children because they have been murdered. Uh, so there's no similarity. Jeremiah 31.15 is talking about a historical incident that happened uh, either in 586, most likely and probably in the 590s in uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion. Um, and so there's no similarity whatsoever. So this is referred to as a literal event that is being applied to a uh, a, a, a situation in the times of the New Testament. It is similar or parallel to that event. It's not typological, but it, it, the, this, that situation in the Old Testament 
is like this situation that's occurring in the New Testament, and so it is compared uh, to that. And that is called, that's a literal event in the Old Testament passage, a historical event with an application. This is like that. That's what we find in uh, Acts 2.16. What Peter is really saying there is that not that on the day of Pentecost you had a fulfillment, a literal fulfillment of the Joel 2 passage, but the kind of thing that happened on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles is like what's described as an action of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the Israelites when God pours out his Spirit in the end times and their sons and daughters will prophesy and their young men will see visions, uh, etc., so it's just pointing out a similarity and used in application. In Matthew 2.23, uh, we have the fourth usage. This is, I think, one of the most interesting. It is a summary. Matthew 2.23, Matthew says, And he came and dwelt in a city, referring to Jesus, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, you can search your Bibles from cover to cover, and you will never find a verse in the Old Testament that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. won't happen, because it's not there. What you do have, again and again, in passages such as Psalm 69 and Isaiah chapter 53, is that the Messiah will be rejected. The Messiah will be looked down upon. There will be no respect uh, for the Messiah whatsoever. Now, in ancient, uh, in 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 in, uh, the first century in ancient Israel, uh, just like in modern Houston, or uh, or even in Ukraine, every place you go, no matter where you are in the world, there's always some local geographical district that people make fun of. That people who come from that area have family trees that don't fork. Or if you travel there, your IQ will drop 50 points. Uh, in Texas, it may be Pasadena or it may be Arkansas. If you're in Connecticut, if you go to Maine, your IQ will drop 50 points. If you live in Virginia or Ohio and you go to West Virginia, it's the same thing. The family tree doesn't fork there. Well, if you lived in ancient Israel and you were from Nazarene, your family tree didn't fork, your IQ wasn't beyond room temperature, and nothing good could come from Nazareth, right? So what this is is a summary statement of various passages in the Old Testament that talk about the fact that there would be no, um, that there would be no respect for the Messiah. He would be looked down upon. He would be despised and rejected. Passages like Isaiah 49, 1-13, Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 52, 13, and following uh, Psalm 69. All of these are passages that indicate that the Messiah would be uh, looked down upon. That's what Matthew 2, 23 is... Um, is talking about is that the the Messiah would be a reproach. Uh, this is indicated also in passages like Ezekiel thirty six thirty, as well as uh, it's also there's an allusion here uh, in Joel. So now what we have to do, which we'll come, we I've run out of time because of the Ukraine report earlier. What I want to do is come back next time and look at how Peter is using these quotes. And that means we'll have to go back into the Old Testament. But I'll give you a hint. In verse 16, when Peter says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, and he quotes from Psalm 41.9, he's using that third that third example. Isaiah 41.9 is talking about a literal event in the life of David when Ahithophel betrayed David. And what is Peter doing? He is applying this and it has to be under inspiration of Scripture, or we have a, have a, have a breakdown, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rather, um, that he is saying that this is uh, what, what David, what, this is the application of that verse in Psalm 
Now, the other alternative is that this is what the Lord taught, because remember on the road to Emmaus, the Lord uh, who had uh, cloaked his identity is talking to those two disciples, and he goes through the Old Testament from the beginning to the end, giving them an extended discourse on all of the messianic passages, all of the allusions, all of the applications, all of the direct prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to him as the Messiah. And that's what we see going on here. So Peter is either stating this uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit or he is uh, using Psalm 41.9 because the Lord has already taught this to them in the Bible classes he held in the 40 days after the uh, resurrection, uh, pointing out that this is what David was, uh, this was the application, an application of what David said in Psalm 41.9. So he's making a valid and a important application of an Old Testament passage to the situation. So he's not making a mistake here. He's not making an error here. He is right on target in the way he's using Psalm 41.9. Now, we'll come back next time, and we'll look at, in a little more detail, the uh, quote from Zechariah in verses 18 and 19, and uh, then also the two quotes from the Psalms in verses 20 and 21 to understand his decision-making process. Once we understand his decision-making process, then we have to go to the next level and ask the question, is he making a right application to this situation? So we'll do that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to think them through. Uh, Sometimes it's not always uh, easy to come to an evaluation in some areas of Scripture. But with careful study and insight, we can, uh, under the uh, teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we can always come to the truth. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us and encourage us as we look at these passages, recognizing that uh, you have declared the end from the beginning, and no matter what the circumstances in our lives may be, there's always hope because you are always in control and nothing happens outside of your control. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.